I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. Suzanne Lerner is the president and CEO of Michael Stars, the fashion essentials company she co-founded with her late husband. She's an activist and a philanthropist devoted to running a socially responsible business, and she's been doing it for decades, far before it was cool. Suzanne is also a board member of the Ms. Foundation for Women. Who was Suzanne Lerner before Michael Stars was built? That is a long story. No, I grew up in a in a nice little suburb that my parents could not afford in Chicago. And my dad was a traveling salesman. So he would be gone from Monday morning to Friday night. I was a latchkey kid with my two older brothers, and my mom was a bookkeeper. But I used to help my dad on weekends, so he sold jewelry. And I loved being with him, you know, checking the invoices and and sorting cards and I just love that kind of thing. So I just kind of grew up with these entrepreneurs. Even though they weren't successful, they had that entrepreneurial spirit. And then in high school, I got involved in the political movements because it was anti-war movement, social justice, racial justice, growing up in Chicago. This incredible movement. So I started doing things like I was the typist for the underground newspaper, and I went to demonstrations, and I was kicked out of school for wearing blue jeans because at that time you could not wear blue jeans to school. So between then and demonstrations, and then my senior year of high school, I decided to bus to a racially integrated high school because I grew up in a high school that had no integration at all. And there was a program called Operation Wingspread, and I was able to get on it. And this is after Chairman Fred Hampton, the Black Panthers, was, was murdered a month later. And I said to my parents, I'm going, and they just could not stop me. They always really helped me get to where I was going. They never really said no. I think I was a very good salesman, really, even in that day. I could convince people. So I went to the high school, and I, and I realized what the world was like for other people. So I went to university and dropped out and worked as a secretary. So I had about a couple of years working for different companies. Even in high school, I was like a Kelly girl. And uh, I saved my money, and I went off to Europe by myself when I was 21 and spent three months there and realized I wanted to do more traveling. So came back to Chicago, went to school and went off again and uh, realized I really wanted to see the world. So I saved my money again and I met an Australian guy in Greece one summer and I ended up going to school in France and then I moved to Australia on a fiance's visa so I could get a visa and work there. And then I traveled for two years overland, all through Indonesia, Thailand, Nepal, India, and uh, experienced life. So um, one day in New Delhi, I wandered into a shop with a woman named Santo Sharma. And I was kind of blown away because it was a woman who owned an import-export business. And we started talking and we became friends. And I went every day. And then she introduced me to some Americans and British people who wanted to start a clothing company. And I had not done that. I mean, I had been on like the teen board for a department store, 
but I had loved Seventeen Magazine, always was dealing with hand-me-downs, but being able to put together outfits, you know, embroidering blue jeans and, and knitting sweaters. So I decided to do it, and I had no idea what I was doing. None of us had any idea. The designer was British, and she lived in Kabul, Afghanistan, making these beautiful dresses. And we took an old Mercedes, and we drove up to Afghanistan. I remember it's in between two wars. And I ended up in Los Angeles with one of the partners who was here. Afghanistan, India to L.A. Like, how did you get to L.A.? So Roger Wong, who was my part, one of the partners, had a art gallery here. And he and this French-American named Alain, who had the money, were friends and were importing beautiful jewelry, silver jewelry and sweaters from Morocco. And so he called Roger. His car had broken down. He said, Roger, I need a Mercedes engine. Roger bought the engine, took it on a plane to New Delhi, and we all met. And we said, we think we can do this company. And Alain had the money. Margaret had the designs. And Roger knew one person in the clothing business. So I went home to Chicago, packed my trunk, and I moved to L.A. And we started by talking to this woman, Lee. God, her name was Lee Walzak, just coming back to me. And she rep Cacharel. And she helped us so much with understanding the business. And in those days, there were these big, big, big books that had every single specialty store in the country. And we just had, we were, so we were waiting for our samples. We were getting ready to start. We, we you know, had our little business license. And then Margaret and Alan broke up. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. And Roger and I looked at each other and said, okay, now what are we going to do? Well, the prior to leaving, I had met, I, my plane had been delayed, and I ended up sharing a tuk-tuk back to New Delhi with this Italian guy who said, I know these people in Old Delhi. And we went into the shop, and it was this amazing company called Sadar Silk, and they were making things for Fiorucci and all the Italian brands. And they were very friendly, and I was very friendly, and I bought some things. So I said to Roger, I remember these people. I'm going to send them a letter, and I think I should just go back there and get samples. So Roger took out his credit card. We put my ticket on it. I got on a plane. I showed up on their doorstep, and they went, Susie, we just got your letter this morning. We're happy to see you. But we don't do business with Americans because we don't trust them. And by the end of the day, they said, we're giving you a sample line and you just have to pay for it. And so I got a sample line and I came back to Los Angeles and we called the line Susie Wong for me and Roger. And uh, we started going out. You know, in those days, there was big specialty stores like Contempo Casuals and Judy's and Bullock's was here. There were so many department stores and you could wander in on a Friday on the open buy date. And they would just write orders. Business was so amazing in the late 70s. So we got orders and um, I called my parents and I said, you did not pay for my college. And I knew they didn't have a lot of money. And I said, I know I'm going to be successful. I need to borrow money. I want to borrow. Here's the orders and I want to have money to pay for the orders. And they lent me money. They lent me $15,000. So uh, we got the orders and I went back to India to check production and we shipped it and we were making some money. And then at uh, the end of the year, there was always quota with customs. You know, you could only bring in a certain amount of goods into America from a foreign country. And quota closed in November. 
And I hit, we had a shipment sitting at the airport. So it was like the end of the road. But what we did was, is when it cleared, I took the goods in and then we went out again and resold them. And I was packing boxes in my apartment, typing, typing invoices, you know, four shirts, four little shirts in a box with a separate invoice, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. But eventually it failed and we just could not do it. Well, did you pay your parents back? That's the big question. In many, many ways, but not that way. Starting a business is really hard. Most businesses do fail. What in you felt like you could call your parents and say, like, I know I'm going to be successful? Like a lot of young women don't say things like that. Yeah. And especially I think the days I was in, I was a feminist and I, I felt I was powerful to accomplish things. And I knew it wasn't going to be in regular kind of things that women typically were doing in those days. And uh, I think when you're, you have no choice, you pick yourself up and you do things that you wouldn't typically do because I knew what it meant for my parents to say yes to that. I, I understood um, what it was. And I just, I was really lucky because they believed in me. So what happened after where we left off? So um, I ended up getting jobs. And um, first job was at a little import company from India. And I did everything. I, you know, I checked the bills of lading. I would sit on the telex and write orders. I was assistant to the owners. But I always felt like I was failing up because I got fired from that job. And I think the, the owner's wife didn't really like me. And I, I didn't quite understand that tension sometimes with, between women and what was happening. And I think I was powerful and I had an opinion and I probably stated it and she might not have wanted to hear it. So I, I moved to other companies. Um, and then I, I moved to a company called Disco Jeans, Disco and La Disco Jeans. And I would sit there with allocation of things this high of orders and have to decide who was getting shipped. Um, we had lots of sales reps. I worked for two male sales managers. And just last month, I linked in with my old owner, the owner of the company. And I said, do you remember me? He said, blue eyes, curly hair, and respectfully aggressive. Oh, I love that. Ooh. That's actually my favorite new term, respectfully aggressive. This is amazing. Respectfully aggressive. How did people perceive you? Like, how did people perceive you when you were in your 20s? and how you were doing things. So you've always been a huge salesperson. I mean, since high school with your dad, you've always been a salesperson. And I don't think most people think of a designer as a salesperson. And I don't think of myself as that. I, I see incredible salespeople, and I don't think that's it. I think I believe in my product, and I have passion, and I'm nice. I think people weren't used to it. I actually, a couple of weeks ago, my first Nordstrom buyer, when we first had Michael Starrs, she uh, told a story. She's a black woman. And she said, you know, Suzanne, you were always nice to me. She says, I would walk into a showroom with 12 other Nordstrom buyers and people wouldn't look at me. People wouldn't speak to me. And she said, I had the biggest pen. I could write the biggest orders. But she said there was something there. And so when I came to her with the T-shirts, she said, I bought from you because of who you were. And I didn't even know about the T-shirts, but I bought from you because of the type of person you were. And I never, I, she never told me that. We've been friends for 35 years and I never heard that story. So, you know, it's really good to always think that. I mean, it always comes back to you, all your relationships and your networking. Well, but I mean, I think that's something that people don't talk enough about in business because we're supposed to be like hard and fierce and everything. But just being a good, kind person, like, do you think that's one of the things that has defined your career? I 
think so. I think so. I think that everybody always knows me as being honest. I mean, listen, I can be tough. When there's a lot of things on the plate, I can be frustrated. I sometimes get negative with people and I kick myself in the end. I learn now to be able to apologize and talk to them about it and explain the reasons why and try to improve always. But I think I've ended up being straight, but kind, honest, but kind. I think you always have to do that. It's a person sitting next to you that's doing the task. Whether they're failing or achieving it, it's still a human being. And now, a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. 
drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how did you launch Michael Stars? Well, from like for about four or five years, I had grown my 200 square foot showroom to a 350 square foot showroom. And I ended up taking on a partner that particular week that Michael walked in my showroom. And he walked in and he had this South African accent. I kind of had met him before through one of my manufacturers. And um, he came in with this line of poly cotton sweatshirt, shoulder padded, printed sweatshirts. And the sweatshirts were really super ugly and shoulder pads had just gone out of style, which I knew, but the designs were really super cute. And I was single. I had broken up with my boyfriend about six months before, and I was determined to never be with anybody again. And I was just so attracted to him. He was handsome, which kind of made it easier and interesting. So after three days of thinking about representing the line, I waited until Sunday night. I remember this call. I was so nervous because he was very convincing. And I turned down the line and asked him out on a date. And he was like, wait a minute. I don't even remember what you look like. And nobody turns me down <laughs> and just could not understand it. And he said, okay. And so we made a date for two days later. And we had dinner and a bottle of wine, and that was it. And a week later, he showed up with the hand-painted designs on T-shirts. And I said, that I can sell. And that's how we started. He had second mortgaged his home. So I was the sales part and marketing and designing, and he was the marketing and running the business. And uh, it it was there. It was there every minute of our lives. And, and it was already called Michael Stars at that point? It was called Michael Stars. The original artist was a man named John Stars who was a volleyball-playing Hermosa Beach resident that used to sell them at little fairs. And Michael used to buy them and bring them. He had a home in Mykonos. He used to go to Mykonos a couple times a year. And his friends would, he'd give them away to his friends because everybody wanted them. So we knew we had something. And I put him up, I put him up in the showroom. I remember this little baby showroom and Fred Siegel, Bloomingdale's, Barney's all walked into my door and said, we want to buy those. How do you think they knew where your door was? Those days, people just wandered the halls and they kind of looked, they were looking for interesting new things in those days. It wasn't as difficult, I think, as nowadays because people don't do those kind of things. Even the trade shows, there's fewer people walking around. There's fewer, there's fewer stores to sell to. What's the process today? Start a website. 
I mean, in terms of marketing, start a website, get some photos done, send an email, hope somebody's going to look, use your networking. I use LinkedIn all the time. I highly recommend it. I will just reach out to people. So you mentioned, you know, sustainability. And I think you've really been a model as a leader in so many ways. But one of them is that you've always, you've always included social impact in everything you've done very openly long before many CEOs would touch anything. How did you navigate that? We would always be charitable ourselves personally. Uh, Michael used to read something in the newspaper. He'd cut it out. He'd send a check. So it was, it's been almost 20 years now we started the foundation because we wanted to give to organizations that my customers would care about. And so basically it was like women and girls. I cared about voting rights and, um, helping women change their communities through government. So I, I was, um, I used to read Marie Claire. You know, that magazine had, was the most political fashion magazine out there at the time. And I found a little clipping of an organization called Women Thrive. Women Thrive helped train women in advocacy. So they as a group could get together and go to their governments and their towns and their villages and make change. And that just appealed to me so much. So I wrote them a letter, I sent them a little check, and when I went to Washington for another event, I called them up and said, I'd really love to meet with you. And, she, and the woman met me for breakfast. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never sat on a board. I didn't know anything. And she said, she started talking to me and I started learning. And so later they offered me a position on the board. And I thought, why do you want me? I own a small company. I don't have the credentials. And they said, that's why we want you, because you have a real voice. And so that was my start sitting on nonprofit boards. And through that and the foundation, we started giving more and more grants strictly to grassroots women's groups. We didn't go for the big, big organizations. They have their own way of fundraising. We wanted to go where our money had the most impact. Most fashion companies are like churn and burn, right? They, they come out with a splash and then they disappear. One thing that makes Michael Starrs unique is that you've had such staying power and at the same time, you've never, maybe at one point you were the sexy object, you know, the sexy, shiny object, but you've always just been a staple. Is that part of your strategy or was that accidental? I feel like we always tried to do things that were on trend, that would last a long time, that was a staple, and not things that were really trendy. I think, though, for the most part, it's because we were a family-owned company. And when I would see that one product, like our our... Uh, screen printed t-shirts. Nobody wanted them after a couple of years. We went to one of our shows. I said, Michael, they're not, nobody wants them anymore. He said, ah, put the booth up. And so we had a little five by 10 booth with that. And in the meantime, I had been doing garment dye t-shirts with French ribbon roses on it with my partner. And I said, why don't we just do garment dye t-shirts? Cause we have customers asking for them. So we had a little, a 10 by 10 booth with those. We got like five orders for the printed t-shirts. And everybody wanted the solid T-shirts. So I think over the years, I really had the gift of knowing what people want and what's going to be next. So we've gone through a lot of transitions, you know, because then we created our shiny object, the shine T-shirt, which in the 90s kind of blew us up. And our one size idea. I had a blue shine T-shirt. <laughs> everybody has a shine T-shirt story. Every single person I meet. Now, it's so funny to hear these stories. And I'm telling you, they're all happy. My first date, my first thing in college, I couldn't afford it. And my mother finally, I was able to afford it. I said, do you still have it? Now their daughters are taking them out of their closets. 
uh, it's really it's really wonderful to see it. What is advice you would give to a younger woman kind of starting out or a woman in her 40s who wants to pivot? God, you've got to find what you're passionate about, I think. I think. A lot of people were probably in careers they really weren't happy in and how to deal with especially these women in the 30s and 40s that are having to redefine themselves and what to do. So I think they just have to go out and, and search for it a bit. But it takes work. Uh, and I think using, again, your networks of people who care like you care, you can find something. And I know there's so many women that lost their businesses. We know. I mean, what's the percentage? I mean, there was a huge, huge failure of so many women. And how do we get those women back into the workforce and caring about things? We were very lucky at Michael Stars. We um, had to furlough some people. But we started making masks immediately. And everybody wanted casual clothing, work from home clothing. So our business actually exploded. And I had been self-funding the business for five years before. I didn't want venture capital money. I wanted my 100% of Michael Stars as a woman-owned company. I just wouldn't do it. And that kind of helped us survive that and be able to bring in people who cared, who were committed, who were also committed to the mission of Michael Stars, like what we felt about women in the world and equality. I wanted women like that working for me. And I have to say, we have so many people that have worked for us for so long. They are now senior managers, directors, assistant managers of a warehouse. This woman, she's now my director of all my warehouses. People have become controllers from being accounts payable. I think you've got to, you've got to almost interview the company you want to work for as much as them interviewing you. You have to make sure it's the right fit. And now a quick break. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. 
Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Suzanne, I know that you and your husband ran the company together for so long, and then he passed away. What was that like for you, both personally and professionally? It was a long road. He was sick, and we didn't tell a soul. He didn't want anybody to know. And then it, it was getting more obvious. So I, I had, at that point, four national showrooms, and we incorporated it into Michael Starrs. And I joined the company officially, full-time, integrating everything, and was going to work every day. And he didn't want to, he wasn't as enthusiastic about it. He was happy staying home. We had just got adopted a dog. And um, he hung out. He started painting and left more to me. You know, we were the, like, dynamic duo. And if we weren't loving each other, we were fighting each other. And, you know, it was the third person in the bed. So it was a big change for me because at night when we used to play Scrabble all night long and talk about things and books and reading and traveling and spending time in Greece, he, would, he was going to bed early. So I had to get used to actually being by myself because I was always the one traveling. And he was always the one home. So we finally told people, and, um, you know, when he passed away, it was very difficult. It was expected, so I knew that, but I didn't understand what it meant after being together 30 years. But I, I 
what was I going to do? I, I had to go to work. I had to be there for everybody there. We considered the company our family. Twice we had big offers to sell, and we just didn't want to sell. We, we didn't want that money. We wanted our family and our business. So I would get up 5 o'clock every morning and go off on the patio with a coffee, and so many people wrote to me. And I would sit there and cry and read emails and post from Facebook and find old photos and um, I would just get up and go to work. And um, I knew that was something that Michael wanted me to do because um, we believed in it so much. And um, it was hard because people were, Michael was a very big presence, huge personality. And I don't think people trusted me. They didn't really know me. They didn't know my background. They didn't know the years I had worked for other companies. I mean, Michael had been an entrepreneur. He never had any background. So they didn't know all the guidance he was getting from behind with me and the amount of times I've had where I pushed my agenda and pushed what I believe so much. And I would, that's the other thing, just keep pushing for what you believe. I would keep doing it until he finally warmed down and he'd agree to, to something. But there were a lot of silos at the company, a lot of people that might have resented me, didn't think I thought I, could, I was going to fail. And I just kept working at it every day and trying to break down the barriers and getting people to talk to each other and redefining and re-looking at the company as a new shiny object of what we could do to make it new again. Did you get rid of those people who were in the silos or did you convert them into Suzanne Lerner fans? Well, I, I converted most people. There were a couple that I know during the years had wanted me to get, wanted to fire me because I think they wanted the power. And so those people ended up leaving. And I had to be strong. You know, because you have to speak up for yourself. You have to feel empowered to be able to deal with that. And, you know, you can't deal with it angry. You got to you got to figure out your strategy for doing it. So, no, we we had a we had a great crew that are still many people are still with us. And, you know, Michael, I, I mean, psychics. I'm going to talk about psychics for a second. I go to Greece. We have a home there and I'd sit in my bedroom and Michael had a hammock. He, he loved being in. And I always put it up and I was sitting there and looking out the window and literally it was just moving back and forth. There was no wind, just moving back and forth. So then I, I just went to a psychic and he was there and I, you know, I felt very, uh, not just warm and fuzzy, but that I know he's there. I know, I know he's always around. And so I don't really believe in heaven and hell, but um, I believe that people stay with you. Their spirit stays with you. Their energy stays with you. And so I think I don't miss him as much as I might have if I hadn't had those experiences. Because he's there. His big photos up, big photos up in the warehouse. Everybody talks about Michael. Um, everybody thinks about him. He, he's really the, the core of the company. Before he left, before he passed away, did you talk with him about what the transition would be like at the company? He, uh, when he handed me the reins, he knew that I would be a good. And, you know, at the same time, I was going out more, doing a little bit more public speak. Well, I hadn't even doing any public speaking about what I believed and what I wanted to do. And I was encouraged. And actually, the night before he died, and we didn't know, he was in hospice, but he was home. Step Up had offered me an opportunity to speak on a panel. And I said, I, I can't do this. And he said, you go, you go, you go. And it was the first time I spoke um, with anybody. 
And I came home and he died the next day. And I feel like he waited for me, like he believed in me and he wanted what was best for me. Uh, when I used to go out of town places to like my board meetings, he wouldn't tell me this. He'd always argue with me. I'd never tell him until the night before that I was actually leaving because he'd always get upset that I was leaving. But my, my friends would say, oh, he said, oh, Susie's out saving the world. She's out of town doing the things. Oh, she re he really believed in, in what I believed in and encouraged me in many ways. But there was no big transition plan. What do you do at night now, now that he's not there? Well, I'm probably on Zoom calls and working and doing something until probably about 8 o'clock at night. And uh, then it's trying to make something healthy, binging the latest show. Playing, oh, I do play spider scrap. I do play spider. It's terrible. It's spider solitaire. Do not start. One of my friends started and, and yelled at me the next month saying, I can't get off of it. So I, it kind of is almost like my meditation. I mean, I do my Pilates and my yoga. That's so funny, Suzanne, because I always say that my, my near time spelling bee is my meditation. Well, I have to say that's probably a lot better for your mind learning new words than <laughs> spider solitaire, which is just <laughs> so mindless. But, you know, I'm doing so many things between my activism and, you know, and, and running the company and 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 friendships and trying to change the world and getting the equal rights amendment passed and there's so much going on that I actually have to find that break to do nothing. And I am do not have children like you two. So I am lucky enough to have that thing. It's just me and my dog. And don't you have stepchildren? I have two stepchildren and I have two grandchildren. Ah, oh, and are you involved in their lives? I am. I am. Sometimes it's not easy. You know, I feel they have resentments. The, the, the kids, the stepkids definitely have resentments. And I, I hope that one day they'll figure it out. But I'm not holding my breath. And you know what? It's their life. They have to decide and understand who I am for them. And I'm hoping one day they'll, they'll figure it out. But I have so many friends. And I, I really do feel that friends and companions are your family. They really are. And I have a wonderful brother and a niece and nephew, and they've got kids, and I'm like, shoo-shoo. I show up. You know, those FaceTime calls every week are so great, and I just saw them last weekend. They're in New York, and I walk in the door, hey, shoo-shoo. So um, I, you, know, I, you, have, you can build families wherever. Speaking of so much to do, what is next for Michael Stars? I mean, where do you hope to bring the brand? If someone, you know, came to your door tomorrow and tried to buy the brand from you, would you sell it? How are you thinking about that? I'm a proponent of keeping your companies private. I've seen so many brands, so many brands that are no longer relevant. They're just a licensed brand because they got offered, the founder got offered a lot of money. They take it. They have a contract. They usually stay about a year before they're either kicked out or the company has changed so much. The product becomes less relevant. Somebody's got to pay back the VC. Somebody's got to pay back the future profits. So the quality suffers and the pricing goes up and they lose their way. And I don't want that to happen with Michael Stars. It's just something about this company that's so special. So I'll probably end up doing an employee share and do something different. Um, we have wonderful new people that have come on board that are helping me out now where I don't have to sit in the design room and fix things. You know, they're there now. They're helping product. We have a wonderful marketing team, um, great art director and so my plans are to help the community of Michael Stars learn more about 
actionable items that they can do in the world to change the world. Because gender equality for me is really important as racial equality. And a lot of my customers don't have time to think about where to go, what to do, how to get involved. They're very busy lives. And I want to give them that opportunity to learn and share about things. Even if they just share it on a like, I want them to share it with their friends for more and more people to know about what we need to do in this world to really have full parity. And so that's my big mission. And I, I'm Michael Stars, I could have closed it. And business was kind of not great when Michael passed away. And I just pushed my own money. I took my savings. And I said, I, I'm going to make this happen. I believe in this brand. And my CPA and my board and people who worked for me believed in me. And from them believing in me, I was able to go forward into the world and just do what I had to do. And I invested a lot of money back in the business. But I, I just knew that it's something more important. It's, it's, it's not so tangible. And now I have to say in the last two years, business is phenomenal. So now I'm my role this year is to incorporate my vision and who I am into the brand. All right. Well, we're going to go to our speed round now, Suzanne, where we're going to ask just a few quick questions and you can give us quick answers. What are you reading? I just finished a book by Tahiri Coates called The Water Dancer. It is one of the more beautiful books I've ever read in my life. So I highly recommend it. And I'm going to start reading. I try to read a fiction and a nonfiction book at the same time. And I've got a pile of books that I've collected over COVID that I want to read. But um, I just got, um, a friend of mine just gave me Patrice Calora's new book that's uh, about 12 ways that you can, you can change the world. Because she just wrote an incredible book about um, her upbringing in California. And she's really an icon for me. So that's the next book I'm reading. I'm reading a lot from um, African-American authors. I want to understand more. I, you know, I was white. I didn't think I was privileged, but I was definitely white privileged. And understanding the world in a different way is, for me, really important. You mentioned binge-watching shows. What are you binging right now? Oh, The Gilded Age, which I, I really love. I love Julian Fellows. And Pammy and Tommy, a friend of mine produced it. And actually, it's really good. And it really talks about a woman's role in those days. And she was the one who got all the pressure. He, he got nothing. So it was really interesting how dynamics of women and feminism and culture and sexuality and pornography um, and what it was like in those days and what she went through. Really different now. When you travel again abroad, where is the first place you're going? I mean, I really want to go back to India again. I haven't been there in years. But, you know, I'm a little fearful about the changes that have happened in the world since I've gone uh, and haven't traveled as much. And, you know, Haiti, I've been going to Haiti since the earthquake, and it's like a second home. And their political problems are so bad that I haven't been able to go there either. If you had to put all of your money into one cause, I know you're involved in so many, what would that one cause be? That is a terrible question to ask me. I am giving money. I, You have no idea how much money I give out to I mean, it's not the amount of money; it's the amount of. I know, but that's why I—that's why you're the only guest I've ever asked this to, Suzanne, because you're always giving your money away. For me, it's supporting women, in whatever way. So I'm kind of getting around this. It, it, you know, I'm supporting women of color, grassroots movement building. I really do believe that the world's going to change from the bottom up, and so anything that I can do to create equality, parity, and power in women are the causes that I give to. All right. Well, Lou Burns has been listening to our conversation this whole time. 
and he is joining us with the male perspective. Because of who you are, and you have a huge following, um, if you could change anything that's happening right now, the outcome of it, what would it be and why? Keeping democracy. I think that in this time right now, with what's going on in every single state that's not allowing reproductive rights, voting rights, the war in Ukraine, the authoritarian governments all over the world that are taking power, it really is frightening to me. So I think the biggest thing that I would love to see is democracy in action where everybody has an equal voice. So, you know, it's funny, Sam, I met Suzanne years ago at the Riveter in LA, and she's one of those people that you quickly realize, wow, I'm really lucky I met her for a myriad of reasons, right? Like, she's very cool. She's kind of like the epitome of cool. And she's been doing things for decades that were very avant-garde that, like, maybe we really think are normal now. But, like, she did them way before anyone else did. It's funny. I knew Michael Starrs way before I knew of Suzanne because I was a Michael Starrs T-shirt-wearing person in my, I think, 20s. I mean, years ago. And um, I remember it was, like, one-size-fits-all and everyone had those. They were, like, the sparkly T-shirts. And then the way I met Suzanne, it's kind of funny, but she came to one of my political events that I'd organized. And then she cold emailed me on LinkedIn and asked if we could set up a call. And it sounds like that's something she does often. Like she reaches out to people she wants to know and she just goes for it, which, you know, I'm a huge fan of. And I mean, it's inspiring to see someone because I remember when she reached out to me, I'm like, oh, my God, she's the CEO of Michael Starr. She's a, you know, she's a stud. Like, that's kind of how I, I think of her. And um, but if so, you know, a lot of people think they're above doing something like that. And I love the fact that as a CEO, she still does that. And she's still doing it, you know, in her, you know, well into her career beyond just being a CEO. And, and you know, she's she's very young at heart, but like she's still incredibly curious and creative. And I think it sounds like she's been that way her entire life. I mean, it was so interesting to hear about her childhood and to hear like, I'm sorry, but like not a lot of people are like running off to India and meeting with textile designers in, you know, whatever year that was. It's fascinating. It's wild. I also love the part where she shared how she's rebuilt her life after the loss of a spouse, which I think a lot of people can relate to. And, um, you know, having no kids of her own and losing a spouse, that must be an incredibly intense and lonely experience. And somehow she still lived right away, it seems like she figured out a way to live a fulfilling, rich life. And and I found that so impressive. I agree. I mean, she's. it sounds like she's been very intentional about it. And um, that's hard, right? But she's kept living and kept dreaming and kept meeting people and doing things and building Michael Stars. I hope that my career looks like hers in a few decades from now. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you'd leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para and our male perspective, Lou Burns.